The Russian composer and conductor Igor Stravinsky said that I have not understood a bar of music in my life, but I have felt it. Now, of course, Stravinsky could actually read and write and make beautiful music, but I think that his quote speaks to something that is universally true for all people when it comes to music, even for the musically illiterate like myself. That music is so much more than the bars and the measures and the notes that are written on the page, all of those technical pieces that actually make music music. Music is about its ability to stir emotion within us. It's an ability to make us feel. That music speaks to us across all of human experiences. That we listen to music when we are happy or sad or angry. We listen to it when we're dealing with depression or anxiety. It helps us through all of those emotions. Most of us throughout our lives will eventually fall in love. And so music, there are these great love songs that help us through that experience, right? I remember in the 90s when I was growing up, those infomercials would come on for the Ultimate Love Songs collection. For just $16.99, you could own 36 of the greatest love songs of all time. And then, of course, one of the rites of passage, especially when we're teenagers, is that we will all experience heartbreak, that relationships will end. And so for that, there are no shortage of songs to deal with a breakup. Go on to Spotify, and you can find playlist after playlist of, heart of breakup songs. Music is bigger than just our personal lives, it's about our socioeconomic lives as well, that has this ability to shape who we are as a collective people. Think about those uh, great songs, those great African-American spirituals, some of which are in our hymnal, that speak of a, a longing, a hoping for a, a better future and helps to shape us and invite us into creating that future. And then, of course, in this lead up to Christmas, we have been inundated with Christmas songs, Right? Uh, I've been driving Axel to daycare, and he has his favorite. Santa Claus is coming to town by the Jackson 5, and uh, Dominic the donkey. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard that one. Don't listen to it. You will regret it. Um, I am not going to sing it for you, no. Gretchen fitting right in. It's been a few weeks, and you're already, you're already heckling me during the sermon, so that's great. <laughs> You've won major brownie points here. Um, and then, of course, here in the church, we have our Advent hymns. And we've been singing some of those. We've had those theological heavy hitters like You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, um, which was amazing. And, but we've also we've had those, those real Advent hymns, those hymns that help to uh, prepare us for the arrival of Christ, that help us to wait expectantly and to look with hope for his, uh, for his arrival. And then, of course, at the end of this week on Christmas Eve, uh, we will sing all of those great Christmas carols, those very familiar ones that we love, that, that help to center us into this season. We'll hear it through the voices of children and adults. We'll hear it as we sing together collectively. That there's nothing quite like music to help us to feel like we are in the Christmas spirit. And so today, as we are on the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, we are also in the final uh, sermon in our Christmas movie series and we will be looking at the movie Elf, uh, which stars Will Ferrell, who plays Buddy the Elf. And Buddy the Elf loves to sing. He says that the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. Now, I know that not everybody loves the movie Elf, and that's because not everybody can stomach Will Ferrell in long segments. 
most of the people who love Will Ferrell are 19-year-old college boys in their dorm room for the first time away from their parents. And yes, that is a very specific example from my life. Um, <laughs> but I think that Elf has sort of stood the test of time, and it's become a classic uh, since it came out in 2003. And the movie begins with uh, Santa Claus in a 30 years prior in an orphanage, and Buddy the Elf, or he's not the Elf yet, Buddy, accidentally climbs into Santa's sack of toys, and Santa accidentally brings him back to the North Pole. And instead of deciding to bring Buddy, who's a human, back to the world of humans, the elves decide to raise him as one of their own. And so someone named Papa Elf uh, raises Buddy as an elf. But of course, Buddy doesn't really quite fit in this world, and that's quite literal. Uh, he's six foot three, uh, so he doesn't really fit with any of the furniture or any of the, You kind of see it here with him sitting in the classroom. He, the, the desk is way too small for him. He's also not very good at making toys. He's sort of clumsy. He just really doesn't fit in this world. And, and so finally, uh, after Buddy hears some of the other elves talking about how he's actually human, uh, Papa Elf finally comes clean and, and tells him that he's a human, that he, uh, his mom gave him up for adoption before he was uh, before he, or before she passed away, and that his father, Walter Hobbs, doesn't even know that he exists. And to make matters worse, Walter Hobbs is on the naughty list. <laughs> and so after this little brief existential crisis where Buddy f figures out he's a human being, which maybe he should have figured that out if he's six foot three, um, after this little brief existential crisis, Buddy decides to set out on a journey to go and to, to find his dad, to reconnect with his biological father, Walter Hobbs. And that journey takes him to New York City. And Buddy doesn't really fit within New York City either. He's a little too strange even by New York standards. Um, you know, New York is not known for being this incredibly friendly place. That's sort of the stereotype of New York. And Buddy kind of is waving and saying hi to everybody on the street. He's, uh, he's making himself sick by running around in the, uh, turn or the revolving door for a fancy hotel. Uh, he pours syrup onto his spaghetti uh, because elves eat from the four basic food groups, candy, candy canes, candy corns, and syrup. Uh, and then there's that scene where he's picking the gum off of the handrail that goes down to the subway and eating it, which if you've ever been on the New York subway, it's like a Petri dish. So, um, so Buddy doesn't really fit in this world, but he does eventually connect with his father, uh, Walter Hobbs. And uh, Walter, of course, doesn't believe Buddy's actually his son. But DNA testing proves that indeed Walter is the biological father of this man who thinks he's an elf. And so in this mission to reconnect with his father, uh, Buddy is also in, on this mission to kind of bring some Christmas spirit back to the world, that uh, the world is incredibly cynical that Buddy inhabits, that every single character that Buddy meets has an incredible amount of cynicism, not just about the holiday season, but seemingly about life in general. And so we know that that's the case because early on in the movie, Papa Elf takes Buddy to go and see Santa Sleigh, and that's where he learns that Santa Sleigh used to run on Christmas spirit alone, but the clausometer is what it's called, is almost at zero. And so it's not enough to keep Santa Sleigh up in the air, so they have to put the, the Kringle 3000, a turbine jet engine, to help keep Santa Sleigh up in the air. And so Buddy meets all of these incredibly cynical people. 
You know, Walter Hobbes, his biological father, is not on the naughty list for no reason. When we meet him, he is an executive at some children's publishing company that's housed in the Empire State Building. And he is in the process of repossessing some children's books from a nun for lack of payments. You know, he's not a nice guy. Uh, He's cynical, he's obsessed with work, and in the process, he's neglecting his family, what would be Buddy's stepmom and his half-brother, Michael, uh, incredibly, an incredibly cynical person. And, and Michael, Buddy's half-brother, is also cynical about his relationship with his dad because his dad's never around, and, um, so which makes him kind of cynical about the Christmas season. Uh, there's a scene where Buddy goes and works at this fictional toy store called Gimbal's. Uh, you all know that. If you've seen the movie, you know the scene. Uh, and he's like this jolly, happy person, and and the manager of the store is like kind of just trying to get through the holiday season, and Buddy keeps singing, and, and the manager says, there's no singing at the North Pole, and, and Buddy kept, keeps saying, yes, there is, and the manager says, no, there's not, and there's this whole sort of cynical outlook. And it's at Gimbel's that Buddy meets uh, the love interest, a woman named Jovi. And Jovi is cynical, and not without reason. She just wants to get through the holiday season, she says, and it seems like it's because She's isolated and alone from everybody else, and she's uh, living through poverty. Her, her water keeps getting shut off. That's actually how she and Buddy make a connection that, you know, Buddy doesn't know how to live in the world of L or in the world of humans, and so uh, she's singing in the shower, and so he comes into the bathroom and starts singing with her, and of course she freaks out. But Buddy doesn't know any better, but it's through this connection with music, and, and Jovi starts to transform. She starts to become happier and more joyful as she has this interaction uh, with Buddy. And really, all of these cynical characters are transformed in their interactions uh, with Buddy, and, and he actually helps them to save Christmas. So at the end of the movie, uh, Santa's sleigh crashes in Central Park. The, the Kringle 3000 falls off, and the clausometer hits zero, and so it crashes in Central Park. And, and so these characters, uh, Jovi, Walter, Buddy's stepmom, Michael, they all get these New Yorkers together to start singing Santa Claus is Coming to Town because they remember the the, the message that the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. And so as all of these New Yorkers sing Santa Claus is Coming to Town, the the clausometer starts to go up and they don't even need the Kringle 3000 anymore. Uh, But Santa's sleigh gets up in the air and Christmas is saved. That the best way to spread Christmas cheer is is singing loud for all to hear. 2,000 years ago now, a woman sang loud for all of us to hear, a woman who lived on the edge of the most powerful empire on earth at the time. And we know her now as Mary of Nazareth, the, the mother of Jesus. And she told a story of how an angel had visited her and told her that she was incredibly favored by God. And perhaps she wondered, like we all do when we hear about divine blessedness, what is it that makes us so favorable to God? And of course the answer is is that we are favorable to God simply because we exist, simply because we are, simply because we are here. We are favored by God. And the angel says to her that she is going to give birth to a son who is going to be the savior of the world, who is going to be the long-awaited Messiah, the one who is going to set the entire world Right. And I'm sure that she experiences this announcement as a strange sort of mixture of of both good news and stressful news, of grace and also fear. 
And yet in that moment, she says yes to God. She consents to God's will and to God's action in her life. I said this a couple of weeks ago when it came to Joseph, and I think it's especially important here that that Mary can still say no, that this is not forced upon her, but she does say yes. She consents to this. She says, here I am, a servant of the Lord. So as she experiences this divine favor, she has to go back out into the real world. And I'm sure that she experienced no shortage of cynicism from the people around her. The loud whispers in the grocery store from people who wanted to pretend like they were hiding what they were saying, but actually wanted Mary to hear what their latest theory was about how she actually became pregnant. Or perhaps the the cynicism, uh, the idea that God had chose somebody like Mary, this little teenager on the edge of empire. The Messiah was supposed to be a king, after all. A king who would rival the power of Rome and all the great empires of of history. There's no way that God was choosing Mary, right? Or perhaps they were cynical about the idea that God was at work in the world at all. I mean, look around you, they would say. Look around you. The Romans are still in control. Things are going to be as they have always been. And so maybe they were cynical with her the way that we're cynical with young people today and said things like, when she gets older, she'll see how the world actually works. So all the cynicism, I think, starts to weigh on Mary, and so she has to to get away from it all. And so she goes to the only other person in the world who could understand what she was going through at that time, her cousin Elizabeth. We met Elizabeth last week. She was pregnant with who would become John the Baptizer. And Elizabeth is inexplicably pregnant as well, not because she's a virgin like Mary, but because she is well beyond childbearing years. And so these two women inexplicably pregnant with God's grace and love and favor literally growing within them, embraced together. And what Elizabeth says to Mary is, when I heard that you were here, John leapt with joy within me, and you are blessed among all women. Perhaps It is Elizabeth's words that helped to lift Mary out of this distress, of the the sort of cynicism that I'm sure surrounded her. And it's in that moment that Mary starts to sing. This is one of my favorite parts of of the Advent season is Mary's song. She sings about God's favor for the, the lowliness of God's servant, someone like her. She sings about God's faithfulness that endures to all generations. And then she sings about the world as it could and as it should be. She sings about the the, the powerful being torn down from their thrones and the lowly being lifted up and them standing together on the same plane. She talks about the, the hungry being filled with good things, but the rich, they're being sent away empty handed. Mary's song resists cynicism, and that resistance to cynicism is called hope. And Mary orients us to hope. That it is so easy for us to be cynical about the world, right? It is so easy for us to be cynical about the world right now. To be cynical, to say that the, that the poor will always be poor, the hungry will always be hungry, the powerful will always trample the weak and the meek, that the, the gap between the rich and the poor will continue to grow in an ever-widening chasm. That in the wake of the Oxford tragedy, 
it is easy to be cynical to say after school shooting, after school shooting, that this is the way that things will always be. But Mary resists that sort of cynicism. And she sings of God's new world. She says that what is does not have to be. The the poor don't always have to be poor. The hungry don't have to always be hungry. Those in prison don't always have to be in prison. School shootings, they don't have to continue to happen on and on. That the world as it could and should be is possible. That it is being born through the lowliest of servants, people like her. Through all of those who like her say, here we are the servants of the Lord. You know, it started to strike me as strange when I became a parent that Jesus had parents. Um, I know that seems super obvious that, of course, Jesus had parents, but, but Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, had parents. Like, that's super lame to me. Um, do, you think, do you think that Mary kissed him in front of his friends and embarrassed him, or that that Joseph told, like, corny dad jokes. Um, But Jesus had parents. Jesus had people who we called mom and dad, and, and parental relationships are always complex. For good or for bad, our parents shape who we become. So one of the things I love to imagine as I come to this song every Advent is that Mary would sing it to Jesus as a lullaby. That in the, in the stable that first Christmas, she, as she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, that she sang this song, that God's faithfulness endures to all generations, that the, 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 the hungry are being filled with, filled with good things and the, the rich are being sent away empty-handed, that she would sing this to him as he would wake up in the middle of the night hungry, and, and that as he got older, he would learn the song himself, that he, as he and Joseph would work in the workshop together, that they would hum it together, that out in the, the wilderness of temptation, that, that as Jesus was tempted to become a different sort of Messiah, one that had power over people, perhaps his mother's song came back into his consciousness and it helped to shape the, the direction of his ministry. That as he cared for those who were sick or in any kind of need, as he challenged religious and political powers, he was putting tangible expression to his mother's song. And perhaps on the cross, as his mother stood there, he heard her sing it one last time. That song about God's faithfulness that endures even in the darkest of moments. It's easy to be cynical right now. It's easy to be cynical with all the events that are going on around us. It's easy to be cynical as another variant of the coronavirus is spreading around us. This is not the way that any of us wanted to learn the Greek alphabet. It's easy to be cynical about the world. But Mary's song, Mary is our mother too, and she is inviting us and she is teaching us her song. That what is doesn't have to be, that the world as it could and should be is being born through all of us servants who, like her, say, here we are, the servants of God. That the new world, that the world as it could and should be, it is being born as we have been writing postcards to our legislators calling for an end to cash bail, as we have been packing food for uh, Rise Against Hunger, as we've been going down to Crossroads Soup Kitchen, as we have been engaged in the work of, of addressing the climate crisis. Through all of us, the world as it could and should be is being born. 
And so as we continue to make our way towards Bethlehem and this final leg of our journey, we let Mary's song shape and form who we are. And in a world that is so filled with cynicism, we keep on singing. Thanks be to God. Amen.